This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Up next, from the Center for Social Innovation at Stanford, a presentation by Ludo Ulrich, the director of Moving the World, a partnership between TNT and World Food Program, entitled A Public-Private Partnership That Works, from the Conversations Network. Hello, this is Doug Kay, the executive director of the Conversations Network. And today I'm excited to bring you another session from the Disruption Management Seminar held at Stanford by the Center for Social Innovation, September 8, 2005. Created by the Stanford Graduate School of Business, the Center for Social Innovation builds and strengthens the capacity of individuals and organizations to develop innovative solutions to social problems. And now, here's our presentation from the Center for Social Innovation. Our next speaker is Luther Ulrich from TNT, who is a director of a very innovative program called Moving the World. Moving the World is a partnership between TNT and the World Food Program that's quite extraordinary in the way that these two organizations have really married their core competences and are really bringing value to each other. It is a long-term, needs-based partnership that is global between these two organizations in a very strategic way. So with that, I'll introduce Ludo, who I think you've wired. Thank you for coming. Ludo came all the way from Europe just for today. Good afternoon. First, a thank you to Jim Rice, who invited me here to speak. It's a pleasure. It's a long way to travel from Europe to here, but uh, I think it's worth coming here, um, hearing all your discussions this morning. The title of my presentation, the subtitle actually says, Public-Private Partnership That Works. PPPs, as I tend to call them uh, shortly, they sometimes work, but also many times fail. I've seen many examples of that. And uh, it's fair to say that we also had our challenges with World Food Program to make it work. I will not elaborate a lot in my presentation on that, but I think the key to success there is make it a win-win. If there's an interest for both partners, you're prepared to put your energy in it when times get sometimes a little bit rough. TNT, together with the World Food Program, have a very broad partnership. And I will only highlight a couple of examples today for you. And I will particularly focus there on, on disaster response, given the subject of today. I started this partnership uh, four years ago, and I'm still managing it. And I'm happy to take some questions from you in the end if you uh, miss some specific areas of your interest. Shortly introducing TNT. Uh, it's not so well known here in the States. It's uh, the UPS of Europe that makes it the shortcut. What we are, we are an uh, express mail and uh, logistics company. We operate the Dutch mail company called TNT Post. They are number one in the world. We look at efficiency and quality according outside benchmarking. And we have built a position now in Europe, which is a deregulating market in the mail networks in nine countries. TNT Express, largest express company in Europe. We operate with 43 aircraft, all based in Liège, uh, which is in Belgium. A lot of vehicles and a lot of uh, consignments we ship around. We have also presence, by the way, in the US, and in Asia, and Australia. Third area we are involved in is logistics. Uh, it's also where my personal background is. 
We are the second logistics operator in the world and number one in the automotive industry. And we have a lot of space where we uh, hold stock for our customers. Our partner, World Food Programme, is a UN agency. Their mandate is to fight hunger. And hunger is a serious issue in our world because, as we speak, 860 million people go to bed hungry every day. What they do, they bring food from A to B. Basically, you could say there's enough food in the world for everybody to eat. And diabetes is one of the biggest growing diseases in the place we know very well. But in a lot of parts in the world, it's very different. So to get food from A to B, from here to there, is basically what World Food Program does. And they have a large organization. They have ships they operate. Well, they not operate. They use ships. They source that. They have planes in the air and trucks on the ground. And sometimes it gets quite difficult to get to remote places. So they use donkeys, helicopters, and elephants to get food to these places. So what do we deliver to World Food Program? Three things. First of all, we help them with knowledge, expertise, in the area of capacity building. We help them in case of big-scale disasters with uh, hands-on support. We make assets and people available. And thirdly, we help them to create new resources. I will give you an example of each of these three areas. The first one, expertise, knowledge transfer. You're looking here at pictures of uh, South Sudan. Um, they are taken uh, last year. What we have done there, we have implemented the logistics capacity assessment and simulation model. Um, and to set the scene, Sudan is the largest country in Africa. They're in the top 10 of the world. The infrastructure, as you can see, is extremely limited. Roads are hardly there, and if they are, they are not from tarmac. But what happened earlier this year, there was a peace agreement being signed by the SPLA, the rebellions from the south, and the, uh, the government of Sudan. That will mean that many of the people who, uh, who went away from uh, places where it was unsafe for them, so they became either refugee, now based in Ethiopia or in Kenya, or IDPs, uh, more in the south, but would like to go back to the north, they have to be fed when they return. And it's going beyond food. It's also water, shelter, but I simplified the story for you to concentrate it on food. They needed food desperately because if we don't give it to them and deliver it to them, they will starve. So that's a real emergency there. Probably that doesn't hit the newspaper as much as things like Katrina or a tsunami. But believe me, if you go there, and I was there in June, it's extremely difficult for these people. I would not survive there for a week. In logistics terms, there's a demand there to deliver 5,000 tons per month of food. So how does this supply chain look like? The warehouse that they operate is in Mombasa. And Mombasa is far east in, uh, in Kenya. And via long haul, it takes about a week to get there. They will go to places like Lokichokyo, which is a corridor close to the South Sudan border. And from there, they make a model split between truck and air transport. And as you can see on this chart, the transport there is mainly air, which is extremely expensive, 70% to actually reach out to the beneficiaries. So we were asked to come in there and help them with mapping the infrastructure. This is very complicated to read, but I just want to show to you what kind of spreadsheet models are behind that model. On the left-hand side, you see the capacity we have mapped out. You see which airports are available for bringing in stuff, which rail is still operational, roads, including budgets which are needed to invest in roads to rehabilitate them or to build bridges. And on the right-hand side, you see the demand, where it needs food to actually be supplied. 
Well, if you bring that together in a model and you start to do some simulation, you can optimize the spend you need to do in infrastructure. You can spend money in bridges or in roads, and of course, you can do it in specific places. That is basically what this model does. If you take the graphs on the left-hand side, you see how World Food Program had plans to do their transport, and all the dotted lines are air transport, and the rest is rail, barge, and uh, road. On the right-hand side, you saw the outcome of the model, where you see a decrease of air transport and a strong increase of other modes of transport. Well, this is only a job for two of our guys who went for six months down there, and they helped to build this model, mapped the whole stuff, and of course, there's a lot of data already available because you can't do that in six months' time. But the end result there is, uh, if you would do an investment of one million in the infrastructure in South Sudan, that would result in monthly savings of 300,000 US dollars, which is, I think, for any company, a no-brainer to go for its return on investment of less than uh, four months. The second area that TNT is helping is in raising the awareness of the profile of uh, World Food Program and also increasing the awareness in the Western world on the problem of world hunger. And why are we doing that? The World Food Program is not quite well known. They don't do any private sector to consumer fundraising. So they don't use a lot of envelopes which ends on your doorstep. They get their money from governments, purely on a voluntary basis. So they're not part of the UN system, they are a UN agency. They need to back every time again for money. We help them to raise their profile because they realize that if they are better known in the streets of every single country which is potentially a donor, then they get more money. So we want to get that name up there. How do we do that? We mobilize our worldwide staff, 163,000 people, in all kinds of fund and awareness raising events. And on the left-hand side, you see one of the events, which is a global event, by the way, which we do once per year. It's called Fight Hunger, Walk the World. And we walk in this place where we live, in every single country, and we do it on the exact same time in every single time zone in the world. So we kick it off in Auckland, New Zealand, at 10 o'clock on Sunday morning, and then we will follow on in Australia, in Asia, Europe, and North America. We get quite some awareness on that. As you can see in the middle... Uh, picture there. It's a WFP employee who was on uh, CNN explaining why this event was there. So this pays off quite well, and if you bring all the events we organize for them together, we have raised funds last year of about 2 million uh, US dollars, and it's all addressed to a specific program that World Food Program is running called the Global School Feeding Campaign, and it will not take a lot of money to get kids in that school program. Uh, you can see how many kids we have been able to help in there. 120,000, you can easily calculate. That is not a lot of money to actually help a child to give her a better life. It's an incentive for the parents in the developing world when you actually provide a meal in school. Otherwise, the child just has to go to a factory or to the fields to provide her, uh, herself for her bread or rice or whatever she's eating. The third area we help out is in uh, disasters. This is a tsunami, you probably have recognized that. And you can see in there what WFP assessed. They did an assessment of uh, where it hit and what it actually meant in terms of caseloads, the tonnage of food that they had to, uh, to bring into there. So the demand was put up by uh, World Food Program. And how did we then respond to that? Well, actually, I was on holiday, I can remember. I was skiing in the Alps. And uh, for the second time around, I was watching uh, CNN. 
I saw the disaster and I thought, well, OJ, this means action. And that meant indeed action. So we picked up the phone, we uh, mobilized internally our key folks, we contacted with World Food Program, and we were from day one prepared to help. But we realized then that we were not able to help because it first starts with search and rescue. There's no humanitarian effort that we could involve in in that time. It's first search and rescue that will take, depending on disaster, one day, two days, can be a week. We've seen it here as well, I think, in New Orleans. So we were more or less restlessly waiting on the couch and when can we do something? Well, we agreed in that time a budget of three million with Peter Bakker, the CEO, to deliver in-kind support to the Asian countries that were affected, including, and I think that's of crucial importance, a carte blanche. It has not been addressed today yet, but a carte blanche, financially speaking, for the key individuals involved in the response operations. So suddenly, a TNT staff member, normally running all kinds of CAPEX procedures in our company, with lengthy times of getting approval for investments in warehousing, was given the mandate you can just spend the money you need on the things that you think that you need to do. That's of crucial importance because that opened for them a complete way of actually being effective in supporting the request from their counterpart from World Food Program. So we started to make these operational resources available and we globally also put a voluntary raising scheme in place that we have some people available when needed. And on Wednesday 29, we started to uh, respond. What did we do? We helped out with three million kind support. We did it in several modalities, so uh, helicopters with trucks, barges. We helped out with people on the ground who were uh, mostly coming from the countries we were operating in, so Thailand and Indonesia, Sri Lanka and India. But we had also some international staff going in there. People who were experienced because they had worked in a partnership in other emergencies before. I didn't go there. I didn't feel that I was of any use going to a country where I would not know the way, would not speak the language, and I probably only would be nannied by some of my staff members there, so I would take their time away. I could be of use in the back office in getting all the things organized financially on communications and organizations. This chart is showing where TNT responded. When I said in the beginning of uh, when I started that one of the most important challenges of public-private partnerships is that you need to find a way to make it a win-win. TNT uh, has a mission, a mission as probably every company has. And in that mission, we have written down, as you can see on the bottom here, we want to instill pride in our people. And we also like to take responsibility for the communities where we work in. Well, this program is exactly doing that because we have a lot of involvement of participants, employees in the world in actually helping World Food Program in the places that they work and live. And if we look at the metrics there, this is an online survey we did in 2005 with about 4,000 respondents, and we asked them, are you involved? Well, many of them say yes, and more of them are even aware, which is nice, but if you then ask them, how do you feel about it? And how do you feel about TNT as a company to work for? 66% of all of them, so even more than the people who are involved, they find TNT, uh, TNT a more attractive place to work, which is good because if you are a service logistics company, then it's of crucial importance that you manage your core assets the best way you can, which are, in our case, our people. They make the difference between us and competition. 
Also from a reputational point of view, we have found quite some traction on the outside market, in media, the Financial Times. TPG, by the way, was the former name of TNT. We changed label this year. We were one of the 10 best companies to work for, listed by Fortune Magazine Europe. And you've seen already the CNN part from Walk the World. If you put metrics around that, we are involved in measurement done by a university on all the larger companies based in the Netherlands. We started this program in 2002. You can see where TPG was listed in the year before, ranked number 19th, and we jumped in 2003 to number 5. Well, if you look at the drivers behind the reputation of companies, at least what this measurement is taking, then corporate social responsibility is one of the five there. Profitability is another one, leadership is one. But CSR is increasingly winning in importance for, in terms of reputations for companies. And if you look behind these figures, what CSR has done for our company, that was really boosted, and that's why we made this jump. Why could we respond effective? Well, first of all, credits to World Food Program, they are pretty well prepared for emergencies. They have done their homework, they have done baseline studies, uh, so they have information of vulnerable uh, people. They have done their capacity assessments on the logistics side. So they know when in a single country uh, would happen something, where to turn to and who to address it to. They have their people on the ground in most countries. They operate in about 100 countries in the world. So that's all the credits to World Food Program. And we were just lucky, I think, because we started this partnership a couple of years ago. And what we have done, well, we had some learning experiences already in other areas, like Iraq, like in BAM, in Liberia, and Haiti. So we responded to those emergencies. We were not so such of a scale like the tsunami crisis. But still, it was for many of our staff who went there a good moment to understand how that part of the world is actually working in a logistics perspective. But we also had some specific projects in place well before the tsunami crisis, like the development of a global service catalog. We have mapped out all the assets we have in vulnerable places in the world, so warehouses, trucks, people, offices, and made that available for World Food Program that they would be aware where to turn to, in our case, working with TNT. And that's not enough, because if, of course, you only provide the asset list, then that's nothing. You also need to provide the people who actually are responsible for it. So we had a contact list attached to it, including the trigger procedures. So who to turn to in TNT, in Indonesia, when Indonesia would have a major disaster, for example, in Banda Aceh. So that, I think, was very important. And also on management level, we had organized, coincidentally, in March of that year that the disaster struck a conference with the key management people from World Food Program and TNT, sitting on one table, talking about the partnership. And I think the most important thing there was building trust. Building trust between the organization at that level. Was everything right? No, I don't think so. We have some lessons learned there. So we did a debriefing together again with WFP in Bangkok in April this year. And what we learned there is, uh, well, first of all, it's important to have local presence. There were some areas where TNT could not respond so effective because we were just not there. So that's key. It was still not strong enough when you look at the local, local situation. And we felt we had some omissions there and we had some, some homework to do during the crisis where we were responding and actually explaining to people how the partnership actually was laid out. So still, we can do better there. 
Customs is of crucial importance, particularly if it comes down to international relief aid. You need to have the right customs knowledge, but also the authorities on local level, otherwise you can't move stuff in there. And we learned also that on top of the local capacity, which is important to have, probably the most important thing, it is also important to have a global team available that quickly can move in there, a kind of a fire squad of well-experienced people on our end, well-equipped, trained, and that actually can go to the places to support and to liaise with the people on local level and build food program. That would be even more effective. So that's probably what we are going to do for, uh, for next year, next year's program. Basically, you could also say the type of roles that occur during a crisis in a logistics company when you want to support, you can predict them. So you can build the profiles on beforehand. There are about 40 profiles, I think, we have found that we're going to map and make available and also make sure that we then quickly can assess which individuals in our company can actually go there. Tracking of stuff, it's difficult to have monitoring of all the commodities that are going in there. It's important to provide a system. And that one might be a bit strange for you, but develop an exit strategy slash commercial policy. If you run a budget of three million and you give a carte blanche to your operational folks in the region, then of course they will spend that, they will burn that money and we will just monitoring on what pace they were burning it. So after a month or so, we will see in the end of the channel. So we had to come up with an exit scenario. And at the same time, a commercial policy, because sometimes the job was not done and WFP would like us to stay longer. And then you come into a very fragile environment because then you become a commercial party where you were a donor. And that's quite difficult for at least the UN, I experienced to work in. And they're aware of it, so they're developing now a policy that also donors can turn into commercial partners. And communications is key. Uh, I know that the Fritz Institute said something about media. You've done a survey there, quite interesting to read. They struggle a lot, uh, NGOs and UNs, with uh, dealing with the media, but also with internal communications. And frankly, we as well. We were not good in producing the right materials to share with our own people timely enough. We didn't have pictures from the region. It took about three weeks to get the first picture out. So next time, on this team of logistics experts, we probably will send a media type of person as well. And last but not least, and I think this particularly counts for, in my experience, in Banda Aceh, where we were quite active with about 100 trucks. I think we operated there on a daily basis. Our people there were working almost day and night, seven days a week. At the same time, our competitor in that market, DHL, was not acting. So, and they had the assets as well. So it would have been much better if we would have responded together. So that is what we took forward to the World Economic Forum. And the CEOs of this industry, they grouped together and they said, let's see if we can do something together next time. Well, that next time started with two workshops. This is before Katrina. I know it's drawing your attention now, of course, but before Katrina, we had two workshops in place with the key individuals of uh, UPS, FedEx, DHL, Excel, and TNT. And we were there to share experiences, to share best practice on disaster response, particularly that item. And one of the things we came up with is that we should develop a code of conduct, how to deal with in-kind goods. We heard stories from NGOs receiving in-kind goods donations, unsolicited goods that they don't want sometimes. But if you would come to our office, or DHL, UPS, we experience the same. Because large producers, 
they have stuff they would like to make available, but they miss the transport, the global transport. So they turn their face to us. Most of these donations are not wanted in the end, on the receiving end. So if we would put a policy up there, well defined with collaboration with our respective partners, in our case World Food Programme, but some of the other industry partners have different partners, and we would make clear before disaster strikes what actually is needed and what not, that could be very effective. That is one of the outcome of the, uh, the sessions we had as an industry. And we had our last meeting in London about three weeks ago, and we also talked there about joint response operations. Could we maybe form a kind of a logistics emergency team in doing operations together? And then uh, Katrina happened, and um, we currently are involved in daily conference calls with the same individuals. So I just had one at 2 o'clock here. And we share again there our actual involvement in the response operations, in this case here to the New Orleans crisis. And we also are currently looking at particularly a place, that's where I put a map up here, Little Rock. Now, Little Rock is a uh, military base. It has been assigned by the US government for all the international shipments for relief aid. So currently we have people from UNICEF, World Food Programme, and we have assigned somebody from DHL to go there, who is there now on the ground, to prepare all the incoming shipments in Little Rock. And from there it will be transported to places like Baton Rouge. So that's what we did so far. I think it can be very effective in doing it. Also more efficient if every company would do it individually. At the same time, it's a very fragile process you're in because we are heavy competing on one hand in the market, and here we try to be friends. But so far, so good it works. That was, I think, my last slide. Thank you, Ludo. I will ask the first question and then turn it to the floor. One of the uh, conversations we had about three or four years ago when this program was first starting. I know the Moving the World program was sort of the brainchild of Peter Bakker, the CEO who saw something on television and wanted to make a difference. But then you went through a very rigorous process trying to identify the ideal partner. And I know in our conversations over the years, you've said that has been one of the key success factors, you know, matching the two organizations and finding compatibility with culture and other things. Could you comment a little bit on that process and some of the things that you looked for for our members in the audience from corporations? I'm happy to do that, yeah. I've been involved myself as being a managing director for a logistics company in TNT for many, many years in being requested to tender on bids. So uh, that's not a nice role to play, I can tell you, because sometimes you win, but many times you lose. So this time I was able to turn the table and I organized a beauty contest and we invited, actually, humanitarian organizations <laughs> to understand that they would like to work with TNT. It's fair to say that some of them just said no. Medicine Sans Frontières said no to TNT. They didn't like to work with us. And they had a good reason behind. They said, well, we have not a global profile in terms of partnering. We are independent on the local level, like many associations uh, in NGOs are. So if TNT wants a global thing in place, we can't cope with that. So, good reason to say no. But we compared a couple of these organizations, both from the UN and the NGO community, and we looked at several things. But the most important was, do you really need our logistics expertise? And is it a sizable need you have over there? And is there a willingness to also make use of that? Well, we saw John and John acting here before. You saw a kind of friendship there. So that works well, but it's not always the case. It really needs to be, on one hand, from... Uh, 
we can give something, but if there's not a demand, then it will not work. Another thing is we carefully looked at the thing we could get back out of the partnership. And we were anticipating that the most wins we could get was on the employee side, in their involvement and their aspiration to join, but also the proud they would feel in actually participating. So we also mapped out the match between World Food Program and TNT in how many common organization places we have. So I think these were very important factors to actually what we addressed before the partnership. And in the end, probably the most important thing is to make it work also on the individual level. So we invited our CEO, Peter Bakker, and a couple of the people from TNT who would have senior leadership positions in this partnership with the other end, World Food Program. And we went down to uh, Tanzania. We went through refugee camps. And there we started the whole process from programming this partnership. So it started off after the brainwash our people got and a clear feel, we need to do something about this. And believe me, if you've been in a refugee camp, that's the feel everybody will have. So they had the right mindset. But at that moment in time, the request came from these key individuals from World Food Program. Can you help me with supply chain this? Or can you help me with that warehouse? Can you help me with a fleet management system? All these kind of requests came up there. And I think that was the most important factor for uh, the partnership. Thank you. So I'd like some questions from you. I mean, are you inspired? What is your reaction? Do you think your company would go for a partnership with a humanitarian organization? Anybody? Okay, Question go ahead. In the aftermath of the tsunami, Architects Without Borders was contacted by Federal Express, some mid-level managers. And we had put together a collaborative response with about 30 pallets of emergency shelters coming out of Germany. Unfortunately, because Federal Express had at that time uh, limited partnership arrangements with a, a very small select group of NGOs, large NGOs, they unfortunately had to decline an initial offer to provide transport for these emergency shelters. Today we've heard a lot of comments about how to initiate some partnership agreements up front so that we can anticipate how we might respond more effectively for the inevitable disasters that are going to face, particularly developing countries with limited resources. I'd like to see us all begin to explore working not only with the largest relief organizations, but sometimes there's a nimbleness and adeptness by small NGOs that provide a specific set of skills, such as Architects Without Borders or Medicine Sans Frontières or other organizations that are a very key component within the continuum of recovery. So I, I invite us to begin exploring the full spectrum of transportation issues for quick deployment and rapid deployment and what that might look like. So I really applaud you. I, mean, I, I admire the work that you've done and that the mindset that you've been able to cultivate at the corporate level for building social responsibility into stockholder awareness, employee awareness, and a corporate awareness. So I applaud you for that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bruce Cahan from Urban Logic. I also applaud what TNT has done, including leadership, to bring the industry to bear. I'm trying to get a handle on sort of the time frame of TNT's desired involvement as you look at Katrina and the rebuilding. Imagine for a moment 
that there could be the most massive urban homesteading program our country has seen since we opened up the West. And imagine giving, once you had sanitized and environmentally stabilized that area, the people who had been refugees the right for a dollar to reoccupy. And imagine the construction industry in our country deciding to mobilize and to either send prefab houses or building materials. How would TNT or its industry reduce the cost to that kind of a homestead program? Or would it be so far after incident, after disaster, that you're just not there? It's beyond what you want to do. Basically, what we, we focus very much on disaster response because we team up with World Food Program. 70% of their budget is going into disaster response. When we make World Food Program better as an organization, be more effective, more efficient, which is the capacity building area, that pays off as well and should free up resources to feed more people. In development type of work or what's in between the proactive relief and recovery, those areas we have involvement in, but to a less extent. What we do there is more on the engagement side. We have about 50 people on annual basis who spend three months of their business life at schools in Africa, in Nicaragua and in Cambodia. And what they do over there is they help to, uh, to improve livelihoods of children on schools. So they do hands-on work, nothing particularly in logistics, but things we all can do, like putting a fence for protection around the school, or building a latrine, or putting sanitation somewhere, or hygiene projects in there, water purification systems. These are the typical projects that they, uh, they do, micro-projects on schools to improve livelihoods of kids. It's fair to say that the engagement, the experience aspect of that, is particularly the reason for us doing it. Because they come back in their own workforce and they start sharing their stories with their own colleagues. And that builds the excitement and the engagement, as I shared with you. When we started this partnership, I expected that World Food Program would not like this very much for a long time. Uh, what they all already said in the, in the onset of the partnership, they said, you know, a mailman from the Netherlands or a pickup and delivery driver from North America going to a school, you know, that can't be effective. Now they say, don't stop, please can you continue and even expand that program, which I cannot because of the budget limitations I put in that area of the partnership. But it's a clear sign that they have seen the, the value coming out of that. A direct answer to your question, uh, I'm not an expert in building livelihoods, uh, for example, after a crisis here in, uh, in New Orleans. The only thing I can say about it is that we are not humanitarian organizations. We are private sector companies. We have shareholders that we have to respond to. So in the end, there is a moment that we will pull out. And in a tsunami crisis, I think I made clear that already after a month, we were running out of budget. And that's the moment that we, at least in that situation, wanted to pull out. We stayed on in Sri Lanka, actually doing business for UNHCR, but it was on commercial basis. It was never the intent to do it, but there was nobody else able of doing it because we have done it for the first month. So it could lead to business in the end, which was never and still is not the objective of TNT. Thank you very much, Ludo, and thanks to all of you.
You've been listening to a presentation from the Disruption Management Seminar produced by the Center for Social Innovation and held at Stanford, California, September 8, 2005. For more practical and provocative ideas, check out the Center's award-winning publication, the Stanford Social Innovation Review at www.ssireview.com. The series producer for this program is Bernadette Clavier. Post-production audio engineering by Jay Yeary. My name is Doug Kay, and I hope you'll join me next time for another presentation from the Center for Social Innovation. Thanks for listening. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.